Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Today's episode is pretty much sponsored by Elisa Egeles, who donated $10 to the Thousand Movie Project Venmo account. Thank you very much, Elisa. And now, on to the show. It's a beautiful Sunday morning on 8th Street. The sun is just recently up, ushered in by roosters scattered around Little Havana, and I'm heading east toward Brickell Avenue, toward Pasión del Cielo. And along the way, I see a homeless woman sleeping barefoot in front of a shoe repair. Her sandals are stacked, and she's using them as pillows, which I've seen quite a lot of people do. She's in a fetal position, facing the wall, and her hands are tucked between her thighs. There's a packet of wet naps and a gallon jug of water beside her head. The beach towel she's resting on has an American flag on it. Some couple hundred yards farther on, between a nightclub called Blackbird Ordinary and a bagel shop called Toasted, a homeless man is squatting on the corner, on the curb, where he's found a half-full can of lemon-flavored white claw. He's pouring it delicately into the narrow opening of a plastic bottle. There's a breeze today like there hasn't been for months, unless you want to count the outer bands of Hurricane Dorian that lashed over the city a couple Tuesdays ago. With the sun up high and a breeze carrying us along, it seems Miami is finally coming out from under the shades of summer and stepping at last into the gentler touch of fall. And there's a... It is I, the baby, precocious beyond my years and yours, but, alas, nonverbal, speechless, speechless save for here, in these, the chambers of my mind. Did you read the thing about how, um... Mia Khalifa, you know her? Mia Khalifa? She was a porn actress? Mia Khalifa? Yeah, the FSU. Yeah, she, she? she went to FSU. Anyway, whatever. Did you hear that she only made, by her account, $12,000 in the porn industry? But she's well-to-do, because she was industrious and like savvy with her brand and shit. Tons of followers. She's now trying to be, but as a sports commentator. Really? Yeah. I remember she... Um, I think she broadcasted that Drake was hitting her up, and um, I don't think Drake got shit for having a text exchange with Millie Bobby Brown, if I'm remembering the name correctly, the young woman from Stranger Things, the very young one. Yeah, what? How did you I get her number? she was 14. Yeah, I don't fuck? know. I think at the laundromat today, I stood at the window while my clothes went around in the dryer, and I watched a young couple arguing in their car right outside the window, at the curb. The woman was in the driver's seat, her boyfriend was in the passenger seat, and she made karate-chop gestures while she yelled at him. The boyfriend faced forward in a kind of penitent silence. Sometimes she'd slap the dashboard, and at one point she folded her arms on the steering wheel and leaned forward and wept. When this happened, her boyfriend tried to lean across the console and hug her, to console her, but this was not the time for a hug. 
The girlfriend's arms go pistoning out from his embrace, and they flail down on him in what looks like a horrible storm of wrists and forearms and elbows, until the boyfriend throws himself back against the passenger window, blocking his face. The girlfriend leaves the car and walks around the rear of it and sits down on the curb. I'm watching through the laundromat window, and she's got her back to me. She sets her handbag on the pavement beside her and starts fishing through it, frantic, until she comes up with two things, her phone and her vape. She pulls hard on her little vape thing and starts thumbing through her phone in a patently aimless way before smacking the phone back down into her bag and focusing on the vape. All the men who pass by are assessing the situation in the same way and seem to be weighing their options, to approach or not to approach. Is she angry enough her boyfriend to let somebody hit on her while he sits there pouting and wounded in her own car? But all the men just keep on walking. The girlfriend has a bird tattooed on the back of her arm. Eventually, her boyfriend comes out of the car. His shoulders are low, and his head is down, and his hands are sunk deep in his pockets. He approaches her with tiny steps, saying nothing. Surprising everyone, the despondent girlfriend springs to her feet and the fight resumes, and she's talking fast and she's gesturing with her blocky vape thing. Her boyfriend, in a flash of bizarre confidence, just steps forward real fast and pulls her into a tight hug. She fights him off as she did in the car and, and, and puts her own back against the car's flank, like right up against the gas cap. But then the boyfriend approaches, astonishingly, for another hug, and a kiss this time, too, and she shoves him back, but a little less aggressively this time. He goes in for a third hug, undeterred, and, and there's something practiced about his determination, like he's gone, he's going through the motions of a well-known recipe. With the third hug, she's fighting him off again, but somehow laughing. They're talking while this is happening, but obviously I can't hear anything, because apart from being inside, I'm surrounded by washers and dryers, and lots of people are talking in here. Also, they're playing both music and daytime television at, at, really, at, at volumes that cancel each other out. What I like about this laundromat, incidentally, is that all the sodas in their vending machine cost $1 flat, and I was a little miffed the other day to have paid $2.60 for a Diet Coke at Passion del Cielo, which is clearly such a flagrantly absurd markup. It's hard to even... It's hard to... It's hard to drink a Diet Coke in peace after you've paid $2.50 for it. But but also, but what am I going to like what am I going to say to the barista at First of all, she didn't set the price. But even if I was talking to the person who did set the price at Passion, what am I going to say? Oh, I could get this for a dollar at my laundromat. So I bought that super expensive Diet Coke and then I just went and I drank it. But having paid $2.50 for it, I was like, "Okay, I should make this last." So I got one of the little tiny water cups that they they give out and I like I'm drinking the soda very, very slowly while I'm reading a book, and but because I'm drinking it so slowly, the soda ends up getting warm and kind of flat, and now it's like, okay, I can't enjoy the soda because I overpaid for it, and now on top of that, I can't enjoy the soda because it's warm, and I, and I felt so fucking ridiculous for how easy little things like this just completely influence not only my mood, but like my my temperamental trajectory for the rest of the day and i think it's actually kind of like a sign of smallness like like uh, you know you're a small person if you allow little because it, it was it was a feeling of like oh you're gonna pull this on me you know it was it was hostile and i don't know when and when i get super pissed about these things i'm like is should i should i work on this is this just the person i am and i should like keep it to myself and harbor these little vengeful whatevers anyways uh back to the uh amorous street fight so the boyfriend is advancing and advancing for all these hugs and kisses, and finally, the girlfriend just, she locks herself up, kind of, you know, she folds her arms and stands there like stiff as a post, and she's looking off toward the sky while her boyfriend is, is, is giving her hugs and kisses that aren't being reciprocated, but he's also whispering things in her ear, and now she's also clearly trying not to laugh. She does end up shoving him away one more time, out of the blue, and then she hastens her way back around the rear of the car and gets into the driver's seat. The boyfriend gets back into the passenger seat. They start making out, hard, each one with a hand moving gently in the other's lap. The dryer beside me buzzes and notifies me of the end of my cycle. 
This whole thing apparently transpired over the course of almost exactly nine minutes. What is up, people? My name is Alex, and you're listening to Beard Problems. I'm Alex. And I'm Percy. We've got beards. And, and it's, it's a, a problem. problem. What is up, people? My name is Alex, and you're listening to Beard Problems. My name's Percy. Beard Problems. Beard Problems. Beard Problems. Percy, I don't know about you, but my beard, huge fucking problem. Same here. Day and night, I'm living with this struggle. It's constant. Well, I wouldn't say it's constant. No, no, of course. It's definitely got its upsides. Of course. I get to caress it, my beard. Um, bartenders don't card me anymore, which is a huge perk because I'm 12 years old. It is very difficult to drink alcohol in public without a beard. If you are 12 years old, like myself. Percy, you know what is just impossible with this beard? What, what is impossible? The thing that I simply cannot do with this beard, the thing I cannot have in my life is toast. I was, I was just about to say toast. Toast is fucking impossible. Uh, Alex, it cannot be done. I bite the toast. Here's what happens, Percy. I bite the toast. Little flecks of bread go raining down into my beard. Oh, it's the worst. It's the worst. It looks like dandruff in my beard, or worse. People come up to me and they point at my chin. Total strangers. They say, Alex, is that a bunch of desiccated flesh flakes in your beard? I say, it's not desiccated flesh, guys. It's toast. It has ne it's never once been flesh. I have flesh behind my beard. But, but that's not the front. It is not the front. It isn't. You're right. Uh, you, know what's, you know what's worse than toast, though? I, I, I think I do. Are we thinking the same thing? <laughs> I, I, think, I think we are. All right. Let's say it together. One... Two, three. Now, yeah, we weren't thinking about the same thing. Apparent, apparently not. All right, well, this has been another episode of Beard Problems. Uh, join us again next week when we'll be discussing cunnilingus and armed robbery. Until then, we've, we've got, got beards. beards. And it's, it's a problem. problem. It is I, the baby. Here at day's end, I rest my chin upon the matriarch's shoulder and watch the sun's descent. With total dusk, I'm returned by the matriarch to my wooden cage. She speaks to me like an imbecile, shuts the light off, and leaves. And thus do I consign myself to another lonesome night in these... The chambers of my mind! I saw a clip of The Exorcist as a child. My parents were watching like some kind of clip show. I don't even know what it would have been, like because they certainly weren't watching The Exorcist. Um, but I saw the Linda Blair scene, the projectile vomiting yeah, scene. Yeah. Um, that scared the shit out of me. Um, I had a friend who was she's big into horror, and she said that she first saw The Exorcist as a little kid and loved it. But she saw it because every night her parents would sit and watch, they would like scary movies, but they would watch anything together in the evening, and she would sneak downstairs and sneak behind the couch, and she would be watching with them, and they didn't know she was back there. And I never, I never wanted me. to ask, but I, wanted, I was wondering, like, what if, like, what if your mom 
tried to blow your dad. It's not a like, what if. She, she, she probably. You think she almost certainly saw? I should have asked. Yeah, she I probably feels lie. super conflicted about the, the times she saw her parents have sex and she kind of liked it. <laughs> and I'm 100% serious. Could be the case. Somebody stole my debit card information, so I've got to stop by the bank today for some cash and maybe like a temporary card. Uh, and I know I'm going to have to sit in one of those little glass offices with somebody who's going to look over my finances and my exp or they'll have access to looking at my finances and expenses. And I'm never, I never look forward to that. It's so intimate, the shit that bank employees see about us. They're, they're like sex workers or doctors in the way that we show them things that we would never show to anybody else. And yet... We, we accord them no particular prestige in the culture, not villainy or heroism or mystique of any kind. It's, culturally, I think we hate banks because they're rich and corrupt, and we sympathize with bank tellers because I think mostly of heist movies. You, you get the image of like trembling women in skirt suits being forced to open registers at gunpoint. Writer-director S. Craig Zoller's got a new movie out called uh, Dragged Across Concrete that does a f particularly horrible number on bank tellers. I, I think I would really like to get a drink with a banker and see what sorts of stories people have told them while going over their finances, like, you know, explaining bizarre expenses. Um, and and I, all these questions come to mind that I would ask a banker, like, what's the biggest number you've ever seen in somebody's account? What's the most amount of debt you've ever seen someone in? Uh, I wonder, like, can you, are there certain physical cues that after so many years as a bank teller, you can kind of tell a person's net worth just by how they walk into your office? I've got, I've got so many questions for bankers, and you know, now I'm... I'm thinking, when I get there, I'm going to ask some of those questions. Can I talk to you about the printing press? <laughs> what about it? I, I got three histories out of the library in preparation for traveling to France. And in the farther back history, in like the 1400s or so, actually my numbers might be off. Whenever the, the printing press was invented. Yeah, no, it had to have been the 1400s. Then Martin Luther, what, 1511, nailed the 99 Theses, I think that's the right date. Printing press originally uh, functioned to disseminate a large amount of knowledge very quickly throughout Europe. Like, first 50 years or so, printing press was mainly um, established works. Uh, the printing houses were still extremely localized, so it was just more Bibles, more histories. After about 50 years or so, suddenly everyone started being able to have a printing press. I'm using that liberally. Yeah. The proliferation of the printing press, such that like a church had a printing press, and if the pastor was per per uh, particularly um, idealistic or vociferous in uh, certain departures from the Catholic Church, he could make a newsletter instead of writing, you know, like a handwritten letter that he wanted his closest friends to pass around to each other. Suddenly, a hundred people were seeing them, mailing them off to other cities. There were mail systems, whatever. Um, the printing press first had this big boom of knowledge and then created a thousand different factions across Europe and then we got the religious wars um, which I'm like obviously not commenting on the value of or anything like that of the democratization of knowledge but I am noting its effect which was we became much more tribalistic much more particular in their tribalisms it's not I'm an Englishman I'm a Pentecostal Anglican reformist with a cousin who happens to be, uh, he went to the New World, and you know, maybe I'll join him in a few years, yeah. think, whatever. You know, so there are many different groups, and um, and that's like the internet to a T. Like, we had, what, 20 good years of just like, pure not, like, just, like, you can fucking trade stocks for nothing, 
Uh, you get news. Email. Yeah, you can talk to anyone. Uh, you can run your business from practically anywhere now. And then now people are just are, are banding up again. All the weirdos can band up, which is, sounds very reactionary. I'm a weirdo myself, but they're come on. So yeah, we have a lot of people banding up against each other again. What follows is like 200 years of course of religion. <laughs> so like, so you think this is feeding the fire, but will culminate in some kind of. I have no idea what this is culminating in, buddy. It is I, the baby, in questioning what crimes I must have committed in a previous life that I find myself consigned now to this karmic prison, I'm graced with fleeting images from a distant time, a sinfulness for which our vengeful God has condemned me to solitary and eternal contemplation here in these, the chambers of my mind. I go to the bank and I sit in a glass office for a few minutes while a very friendly, clean-cut guy of about my age goes through the motions of setting me up with a temporary debit card. It's a friendly, professional atmosphere. Everything is clean and nice. He's super cordial. But now I'm super tense because I really want to ask this question that came to mind while I was in the lobby. If a very rich person wanted to take out an absurd amount of cash, like tens of millions of dollars, could she do that here? Would it take all day? How much cash is available on the premises for that kind of thing? Surely you can't just empty all of the registers and then close up shop for the day. It's kind of an innocuous, childish question, but now that it's on my mind, I really want to know the answer. I'm afraid to ask it, though, because I'm afraid he's going to think that I'm like a bandit, you know, asking how much money is on the premises and how do, you get, how, do you, how do you take it out, whatever. So I'm sitting across from the banker, and he's working fast over his keyboard. He's going through all these things, um, and it's really quiet in his office. And I've got this question in my lap that I really want to ask. I'm afraid to ask it. I'm going to ask it. And then suddenly... A bank manager passes the doorway. He gestures at one of the bankers who's just kind of idling around in a suit, and he says to him, Hey, could I speak to you for a moment? From the way this manager is asking his colleague for a moment, you can tell something heavy is about to be said. For some reason, the manager brings the worker over for a confidential powwow right beside the door to this office where I'm getting my temporary card set up. And I'm sitting right beside the open doorway, so like two paces away from them. And the manager, who's aiming for a kind of consoling tone, he, he lowers his voice a little. It makes it deep and soothing, very somber. And somehow, this makes it easier for me to hear him. And he says to the, to the banker that he's talking to, uh, we, got, we got feedback from a client. It, he actually, he might have said customer, I don't know. We got feedback from a client, and everything's good. She said you helped her out, you were friendly, very professional. However, she said that she noticed you were looking... And, and then his voice drops again, not quite in volume, but an octave, and he goes, at her chest. And then he hastens to soften the blow. She didn't say that you were staring or, or being inappropriate or anything, but just that, I guess she noticed you were glancing and she felt that she should say something. The accused banker opens his mouth as if to argue his case, but then doesn't. I risk a glance over at the two of them, and the banker's got his palms turned up at waist level, and his mouth is open, and he's blinking in a, in a helpless, declarative kind of way. Okay, Mr. Sarando, if you could just type your pin for me. The banker across the desk from me turns his keyboard around and slides it my way. I have forgotten my question. I'm for some reason glued to this conviction that getting married will straighten me out somehow, which I'm sure is true to some degree. You know, there's the stability, the companionship, accountability, etc. But while I'm not in my more reasonable 
hours um, anti-marriage necessarily. I'm definitely super doubtful of the institution, and I re kind of regard marriage as being fairly doomed. But whenever, and then whenever I'm stressing out about something, or mainly whenever I'm like cringing about some stupid thing I said while I was drunk, I end up belching out reflexively. Like I'll, 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 I'll clap my hands or I'll slap my face and I'll be like, I need to get married. And it literally might just as well be gibberish. It, it flies out of my mouth with zero consideration. It's, it's like a nervous tick. It's reflexive, like a mantra of shame. Any therapist would obviously say that it's no coincidence that this, of all possible meaninglessness, should come blurting out of my mouth at moments when I'm really hating myself, but it's also not something I really care to explore. It is I, the baby, cavorting across the screen before which I'm settled in a high chair each morning are puppets who speak of playthings and reductive ethical summations. I can't help panicking over the dulling effect that these shows might be having on, on my intelligence, my sanity, the only two things I have to console me, here, in these, the chambers of my mind! another episode. This is normally the part at the end of the show where I just riff for a little bit, but because it is, this is, it is right now the day on which I'll be posting this. It's September, it's Tuesday, September 24th, and I've been editing the show for almost five hours. I'm getting a little bit faster with it, but it's still... I get bogged down, even though it's a delight and I really enjoy it. But I told someone that I would have the show up by the end of the day, and this evening, uh, at 7 o'clock, I'm going to Coral Gables to guest on a show, on a podcast called Better Let Me Tell You. My friend Ishmael is one of the co-hosts. It's a really good show. I've been kind of binging it over the past couple weeks since they invited me. I'm really looking forward to it, but it's already 3 o'clock, and I have to be there by 7, and um, rush hour is going to be kind of a headache and I don't know like I want to be in like prime conversation form but I don't know if my prime conversation form is like a shot of colada or have a beer before the show maybe I don't know bring a bottle of wine or something I don't know if they have rules or, you know self-imposed rules about how they do their show I don't think I've ever recorded anything for this my own show while drinking um and if i did and i was sloppy about it i'm sure I, I cleaned it up or just completely cut it out while editing and they have another they have a different approach to their to working on their show than i do which is they um they just riff they're two extremely conversational guys and they have great chemistry together and i'm sure there's a lot of editing that goes into the final product but they're super consistent they post every friday and i kind of wish that I could do that. This is I if if I have any aptitude for that kind of just for that kind of riffing, that kind of spitballing. I do it here, like I, I exercise that muscle very like briefly here at the very end of the show. So anyway, it'll be interesting to pick their brains about how they how they do their show. I am also super uncomfortable being interviewed. I I've, like I pursued it in the beginning of the project when I was trying to get a little more attention and traction on the website. I uh, sort of courted an interview from the Miami New Times and then kind of from the Miami Herald and then NPR reached out to me and I was oh and Radio Catacol reached out and I was like oh smooth sailing from here and then there were no more but whenever it happens I just feel uncomfortable about like answering questions about myself and so I end up turning it back on the questioner I do this at bars a lot but which is you know kind of helpful at bar I mean I think at bars people are as just eager to talk and most people are eager to talk about themselves because i think they seldom have someone who is inebriated and willing to listen enthusiastically 
and yeah, I don't know if it's a defense mechanism or what, but it might, I, and it'll be interesting to see if it lends well to being an interview subject. Although I was also on, wait, I was on Miami Underground Radio a few, or Miami Radio Underground, like three months ago, and that was a one-hour conversation. I should actually post that here on the podcast because I still have the recording. That was a one-hour conversation, and, you know, I, I work in, this, in a, like a tutoring center where some public speaking stuff happens, and one of the things I, I've found with students, and it's so exasperating, and I'm, I'm, I'm I'm disappointed with myself for not having noticed it in myself, but like everyone has some, this is in my experience, everyone is interested in something, very interested in something about like about which they can't really speak to friends. Like let's say you're really into baseball, but none of all of your friends are gamers and they have no interest in sports or vice versa. And so it's a topic that on which you do a lot of like recreational reading and whatever. And then one day when somebody prompts you in a comfortable environment, to talk to to say everything that you know about that subject that subject where you've been harboring this this private long-term informal independent study you suddenly find yourself talking for like 38 45 minutes without stop and then finally you stop yourself and you have this moment of reckoning where you're like holy shit is i i seem to know a lot about this subject and you never noticed because you're always just quietly accumulating this stuff not really discussing it with anyone and so when i was on uh, miami radio underground i it, it was i th- i well yes that in that case i'd had two beers beforehand downstairs so i just like riffed and i so i i know like obviously if you look at the blog you'll see that there are thousands of pages of me just sort of riffing about things and ruminating on things so i'm sure that whenever someone prompts me with a a question a question about something pertaining to what i'm doing with the project i'll have a lot to say about it um i might not shut up watch this watch my watch my thing on better let me tell you turn it be like the most insufferable long-winded shit and yet here i'm constantly telling myself that like no i can't do that riffing off the cuff kind of podcast although look at me i'm doing it oh, fuck so yeah i'm gonna wrap this up now i am going to edit this last little segment which at the moment is running six minutes and i'm gonna smack it onto the end of everything i've assembled for this episode already i'm gonna put a little music gonna put up the outro post that shit to soundcloud run to my run to the very distant place where i park my car come back here shower head over to the gables pick something up for the podcast i'll just I, i feel like I mean, these guys are these guys are both Cuban, and the and the show is very Cuban themed. And I know from growing up with them that Cuban hospitality is such that if you if you say, "Hey, is there something I can bring?" they say, "No, no, just bring yourself." But I don't want to go there empty-handed, and so I'm reluctant to reach out and say, "Hey, is there anything you would like me to bring?" Because I know he's going to say, "No, we have everything. Just bring yourself." So I don't know if I'll end up getting like a bottle of wine or pastelitos or something. Um, I got to figure that out. Anyways, I'm off. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and to check out our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can always throw some money at Thousand Movie Project on PayPal or Venmo, or you can buy one of our two ebooks, Horny Nuns and The Ballad of Felicio Knightley, which both cost a buck and are both available on Amazon.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.